everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our series on Vayikra is titled Kedusha is in the Details, and we'll explore the way the laws in the book try and elevate each of our most basic human functions, food intake, bodily functions, relationships, spaces of worship, and time. Check out the Matan website for details about this year's summer program titled Jacks, Queens, and Kings, which will run from June 25th through July 12th. We'll be delving into the roles of kings, governing powers, and advisors in Jewish texts and thought. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content, so if you have deliberated until now about being involved in our project, don't hesitate to be in touch. I want to begin this episode with an introduction to the book of Vayikra. The first 10 prakim are what give the book its reputation as Sefer Koanim. The first seven chapters detail types of sacrifices, and then the following three detail the inauguration process of the Koanim themselves. The second section of Vayikra focuses on prohibitions regarding laws of kashrut and skin diseases. They are all lotase, prohibitions relating to impurities. Many view this unit as reaching its pinnacle with the once yearly atonement process performed by the Kohen Gadol in chapter 16, or what we often call Avodat Yom Kippurim. Commentators and certainly scholars view this section as different from the one that follows, often called the Holiness Code. A section which focuses on kedusha and not impurity, which defines how we actively, positively bring God into our lives and into our relationships. The final section of Vayikra focuses on how God can be brought into our work lives, mainly into our relationship with the land and those who work it. In space, this is the Mikdash, and in time, this is Shabbat. Holiness in this sense requires that we cease activity and refrain from self-sufficiency, letting God do the work, so to speak. To quote Rabbi Sachs, the universe is the space God makes for man, while the holy is the space man makes for God. Many of these meeting points require us to relinquish freedom and creativity to allow God to be sensed. The Jewish people live with these realities more intensely than the other nations, and the priests, the Kwanim, live with this tension even more than the people. The phrase Vasuli Mikdash Veshachanti Betocham, lifted from the Mishkan's instruction in the book of Shmot, really reflects the structure of Vaikra in this sense. First, the rules are set out for the Mikdash, Vasuli Mikdash, and then ways for God to occupy us, our bodies, and our lives can come into play. Veshachanti Betocham. While all the double partiot make our journey through the book of Vayikra a relatively short one, only six episodes long, we will try and go deep on multiple issues that lie at its core. Throughout these episodes, we will try and enumerate definitions of kedusha. In English, we often translate the word as sanctity or holy, but holy comes from the German helig, which means to be complete or whole, and sanctity comes from the Latin sanctum, which means to be walled off. The word sacred also comes from the Latin sacrum, which means dedicated to the gods. These three words all connote very different ideas. In each parsha containing mitzvah details, we will try to define which concept we are dealing with, because as we see, substituting one word for another for the sake of translation often undermines what we are actually trying to say instead of clarifying and deepening our intent. 
Parshat Vayikra opens with instructions to the people about the Ola offering, the Mincha, the Shlamim, the guilt offering, and the Olev Yored. The Korbanot intend to bring the people close to God. Korbanot can be better translated as a creation of closeness from the word Kariv, although both translations of Kariv and sacrifice reflect a dimension of truth about the nature of the worship activity. This is why the book begins with voluntary sacrifices and its variations, more or less expensive depending on the means of the person giving it. There is great emphasis if you could see through the expansive details on the individual's ability to take initiative in their korban process. Today's guest is Dr. Tova Ganzel, Senior Lecturer at the Multidisciplinary Department of Jewish Studies at Bar-Ilan University and Head of Kramim Jewish Studies Honors Program. She was one of the first women ever trained as a Yotzer Halakha and is also serving this year as a mentor in Matan's Kidvuni Program. Tova, it's an honor to have you here today. It's very honored to be here. Thank you very much, Yosefa. Many, many years ago, I also was was a student as well. Uh, and so uh, <laughs> I remember remember those days too. And, you know, I reached out to you for this episode as we open up the book of Aikra, really as a, as a phenomenal Bible scholar. I'll just say that. You can be embarrassed or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Let's move on. Yes. <laughs> but exactly. I'll move on to, for, for our audience to know. And uh, that I deeply respect really an academic of the highest order and also deeply rooted in the religious world. And that I think is a very important uh, combination, particularly for this podcast. And I really reached out to you to try and provide some background to the significance of the physical mikdash structure as well as the institution of uh, of korbanot. So I guess we we could jump into either of those angles, whatever feels right for you to start in. I think that the first uh, question we really ask or come to mind, especially as a Bible scholar who's aware of the ancient Near Eastern world, is Really, why do we have korbanot? Or maybe I'll say it in a different way. I'll say, is the fact that we have korbanot, something that God had initiated originally for all the Jews when he gave the Torah to Am Yisrael, because that's the best way we can worship God? Or is God giving us korbanot as a response to what uh, the Israelites were seeing around them in the Near Eastern world within the context that the Torah was given. And I'm putting this question, uh, I think, as the first question to be asked, not only because I think today, living in a modern age, the Korbanot are so far from us in many different ways, and the way we thought, and even the way we uh, pray to Hashem and materialize our wanting to really be in close relationship to Hashem. But I think it's also because... It's something that's been asked for many, many generations by our commentators. Um, And I think the most, I would say, quoted response given to that question throughout centuries is the Rambams in the Middle Ages, who in the book of Morenavuchim, in the third part of the book, chapter 32, says specifically, I would say, maybe I should say it differently, I would say, that he gives an answer that becomes very controversial to this question uh, throughout many generations later. And his answer is that really the reason we were given korbanot, Am Yisrael, is because Am Yisrael started or, or was 
became a nation in a time where there was idolatry all around. And when Hashem wanted the Am, the nation, uh, to be distant from the Avodah to be distant from the world and the way that the uh, different nations around them worship their gods, he did it in a way that was, I would say, uh, like a pathway. There was like a road to go. It didn't happen at once and it couldn't happen in a night and it couldn't, they couldn't change their habits overnight from one extreme to another. And the korbanot, according to the Rambam, are really this middle way of giving Am Yisrael an alternative to the sacrifices that they saw are being given to different we would call them Elohim Zarim. And if we think about this answer of the Rambams to our question of are the Korbanot part of the utopian world of the way we should worship God, or are there a response uh, that maybe God kind of gives us in a, as an alternative to what was seen around them in the ancient Near Eastern world, then the Rambam's answer really frames it in a way that later becomes very controversial. And it's not surprising that many of our commentators, I would say chiefly the Ramban, uh, really, really say this, go home against the Rambam and say that this explanation uh, can't be the truth. The Ramban says, trying to say that this is really not, almost nonsense or nonsense, and he's trying to, to fix something in a way that's not rational or reasonable. I mean, I think that the most obvious reason why this is controversial is because Korbanot take up way too many psukim in the Torah for it to seem like something that was simply, if I could put it in a different phrase of Chazal, meaning the Rambam is taking this principle that, you know, God had to give the Torah to people who had to realistically receive it uh, and taking it to a degree that seems to be very, 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 uh, very much further than we might be able to go. The other reason I think why this is challenging is because we have stories going back to early in Sefer Breshit, where people were bringing korbanot. It doesn't seem to just be, you think of Noah, right? Think Again, he wasn't an Israelite, but think of uh, of, the, of the commandment of Raham to sacrifice his son, meaning these, this seems to be like a universal mode of worship that goes far beyond just a response to the, the Gentiles. So first of all, that's exactly on board, meaning exact, exactly what Ramban says. And one of the proofs that he gives when he pushes back on Rambam is that Kain and Hevel already are bringing mm-hmm. sacrifices. Yeah. And that's way before Sefer Vayikra. That's, you know, that's that's way before uh, the near the ancient Near Eastern world that the Rambam's referencing. And really he does bring other explanations to Ramban. He says that when someone gives a korban, it makes him do tshuva, because he feels what would have happened to him if there was not a sacrifice to be given with instead of him, meaning there's something that's replacing him. And that's very, I would say, substantial in the person giving the korban. And another reason he also gives, he calls, And in addition, there's some, some kind of secret to it. And he says it has connection to korban from 
קרבה, אחדות, there's something here that belongs to the mystic world that we don't know uh, to give rational explanation to, but that the korban actually does change something in this world that's beyond our understanding. But either way, whether we take the Rambam's explanation, which is more, I guess, like the Rambam stream, much more rational, or whether we go according to the Ramban stream of thought, which is like the Ramban has much more mystical or Kabbalic elements to it. In the 18th and 19th century, this conversation becomes much, I would say, more in the forefront of different commentators commenting on the Psukim and the Torah. And that is because I think of two different uh, trends that come up in the uh, end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century. The first one is the reform. The, the whole reform of stream of thought with, that starts with Geiger and others at the end of the 18th century, at the beginning of the 19th century, one of the first things that becomes common knowledge in the world of, uh, or the reform way of thinking is really that we should not be expecting any more a Mashiach. There's no Messiah to be waiting for that'll then bring back the Avodat Korbanot, the sacrificial system, in a, definitely not in any kind of Beit HaMikdash and that every, all of Am Yisrael will come back to Zion or to Jerusalem. That all was totally pushed back by the reform uh, stream of thought. And more than that, it was also changed in the Sidurim. When we say Mashiach and we look at the end of the days and they're looking for this world, this Ethiopian world, where there'll be harmony between all the people, but also between people and animals. And therefore, one of the things that's under attack uh, by many prominent figures in the reform world in the, I guess, beginning of 19th century especially, is really uh, korbanot. So that's one reason why the 19th century commentators really have to devote much more attention to giving an explanation to korbanot that's more than maybe what comes out of the Rambam's understanding, which has to do with uh, contextualizing the korbanot at the time that they were given in the Torah, or even the Ramban's mystical understanding that doesn't uh, really give um, a good response for the moral, I would say, standard that the reform want to see uh, the Jews standing or living up to. That's one. I said two trends of thought. So that was the first thing, really the fact that we were under attack of the reform in the 19th century. And the second thing is that Many of the ancient Near Eastern texts are discovered more or less in the same time, maybe a little more at the beginning of the 19th century. And many of these texts really show some common denominators between the Torah and even the priestly law. And when we see uh, texts that come out from Sefer Bereshit, whether it's the Mabul story, and whether it's Chukei Chamorabi later that have to do with laws, and all of a sudden the part of the Torah becomes, I would say, understood within a different context. There are different glasses to put on when reading the Torah text and understanding what was an alternative uh, in the ancient Near Eastern world. Then the other side of it is that the Rambam's explanation 
actually gets a historical context that is first understood, or I would say, when we know today much more than we knew at the beginning of the 19th century, I would say it wasn't fully understood, but at least there was a new component added to the way that people looked even at the Rambam's explanation when they were living in the beginning of the 19th century. Meaning it, it bolsters the popularity of the Rambam's position. The Rambam's position seems to be much more anchored in a reality than it was even before. That That's the, the intention? On the one hand, unless you're threatened by all these texts, right. and you feel like from beginning to end they're threatening the the story in Bereshit about the Mabul, mm-hmm. they're threatening the story about Yitziat Mitzrayim, they're threatening the the uh, mitzvot that were given from Hashem only to us, or the covenant between Hashem and Am Yisrael, and then the Korbanot, I would say, becomes another example for something that all of a sudden is not a unique connection between Hashem and Am Yisrael, but just part of a bigger uh, framework, and that altogether can be seen as a threat. Right. What it ultimately called us to do, and of course, uh, we've we've referenced this through all different episodes, what it called us to do is to uh, challenge our idea of unique as only, right? Meaning we often thought of unique means only. We're the only ones who have this, only ones who have these stipulations. as And then to look at unique as how is our tradition, which is related to others, different and sets it apart from other traditions. I think it really called for a redefinition of what it meant to be uh, a unique people. Uh, it didn't mean that we were the only ones who had these stipulations, but that we had our own unique version of them. But yeah, that's a really important point. And it's come through in, in several conversations we've had over the past few months. After we've sort of explored the idea of korbanot and the controversy regarding their significance, uh, I want us to think a little bit more about the concept of mikdash. You know, we had all these parshiot of building the mishkan, and we spoke about specific accoutrements of the mishkan. We spoke about the idea of community building, but we really didn't touch at all upon the idea of the fact that we are not the only society that has a building uh, that is constructed to be sort of a place of central worship. And as we sort of embark upon so many prakim uh, and uh, and the centrality, really, of, of the mishkan and eventually the mikdash in our lives, I'm curious if you could sort of shed light uh, for us on how this is significant, uh, both within our context of Am Yisrael and also against the backdrop of other cultures who also had a mikdash at the center of their religious life. So that's an excellent question. First thing I want to say is that many people aren't enough aware of the fact that in the past few decades, many, many texts are being discovered and some have been discovered and been in the library, actually in England, sitting there in London, sorry. Um, And they've been, uh, and really scholars have been transmitting and then translating these texts um, from Akkadian so that we have much more knowledge. And I think as we speak, we're gaining more knowledge, meaning this is really work in progress. And I guess every decade there's a new understanding developed. I find it fascinating. But if I have to say in a nutshell, a few uh, common streams of thought that are pretty clear today when we look at these texts or when I try to give a a brushstroke of these texts, I would say that we know of temples. We know they had priests. We know their priests had to keep themselves also morally in a high status and also pure in a high status. They had to not have any injuries in their bodies. 
Um, they were constantly checked for their genealogy, meaning they could not become part of the priestly uh, cult if they weren't part of what um, we call today in the scholarly field of the prebendary system, meaning there was, a, uh, like we would say today, mishpachat levi or mishpachot keuna, the families of keuna, they had to be part of the prebendary system, which meant that they had gotten from father to son, from father to son, the capability to be part of the temple worship. So the first thing we have to say is that when we contextualize the temples, the temple, our Mishkan and our temples, the first and second within um, the ancient Near Eastern world is, again, something that we've seen, I guess, once in the Mabul. And again, and I mentioned before in Chukei Hammurabi, I could have given more examples which is we have very many parallels to what we see in the Torah when we look at these texts. Um, there aren't exactly Kohanim and Levim named Kohanim and Levim. There's actually no name for a Kohen in the Akkadian world. But there are other officials or officers, and they are very uh, carefully um, defined as far as what are their obligations, what are their moral expectations. There's uh, a range, their status, you can't move from one status to another. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is, which I think is, the, that's really the similarities. But if I talk about the difference, then the first main difference that comes to my mind is the place of a king. Whereas in the ancient Near Eastern world, the king appointed the top people that would be in charge of the temple. And there, the hierarchy was clear that the priests ended up needing the king, just like the king needed the priest, but at the end they answered to the king, and he was the one who ruled and probably also gained from the economic wealth of the temple when things went well. The Torah really makes it very clear that the priests and the king are both under Hashem. And I want to say something even more, even though in the, throughout the first temple we do have kings, in the second temple, we don't have a king anymore, at least not most of it, and not in the biblical times of it. Um, and we can see within our Tanakh that the model of a temple without a king actually works because the second temple was built with no king. I want to even say more than that, and I want to say that when you look not only at the priest's position, Another thing that's very surprising is that we actually don't know, not in the first temple, not in the second temple, from our Nevi'im, Nevi'im Rishonim, Nevi'im Achronim, what did the Kohen Gadol ever do? Meaning we have it all in the Torah, but we don't have any description of a Rosh Hashanah or a Yom Kippur or of a Kodesh Kodeshim. I mean, we have it later in the Tanaic world, but... If we actually ask ourselves, what happened to the Torah commandments? How did they play out in the first temple times? We actually don't really know. We know, obviously, of Pesach and of Sukkot, but even them are not uh, defined in ways that it's clear for us to understand if exactly what was commanded in the Torah actually took place and when. And that's true for the first temple and for the second temple. Again, we both have Pesach and Sukkot, but not Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And we really don't know what did the priest's daily life do. So the second difference is, I said the first one was the king, but the second one is that the, the, especially the Babylonian texts, but also later, 
give us a very, I would say, clear, the reality of what it looked like to be a priest. You see a lot of um, come and go. They gave enough contributions to the temple. They didn't give enough contributions to the temple. We gained what we needed. There were enough people to sacrifice this day. There weren't enough. You ask us to do all this work and we didn't get what we were expected to do. So in one way, the Babylonian text really uh, show an alternative world to what we see in the Torah. But on the other side of it is that they really demonstrate how this worked in practice, meaning all of a sudden you can visualize the day-to-day community temple life. And you think that that's purposeful, meaning that the Torah remains sort of an instruction without the realia? Is that leaving open a space for Torah Shabal Peh? I mean, what, what's, why do you think that is? Is it simply because the Torah isn't interested in painting that picture and the time of narrative is sort of past? Why is that the case? Well, you're not asking about the Torah, if I understand. You're asking about the first temple and second temple times. Right, I mean, yes, afterwards. I think that what what we see during the first temple times, if we go through it clearly, is that I haven't counted the years exactly, but I would say that between a third and half of the years that the first temple stood, there was a vodazara, meaning there was idolatry in the temple. You don't expect what we would expect to hear is just descriptions of how this was similar to the other nations and not how this was different. And from the other years where we really uh, see times that was temp- that the Vodat that the temple worship was really gone in the ways of God, whether we're talking about uh, Shlomo at the beginning of his days, Chizkiyahu, Yoshiyahu, there aren't many, many years, but when we have them, then the descriptions have to do with the prominent stories of the figures that ended up being uh, very substantial for understanding when did the nation uh, stay as one, when did the nation separate into two, when there were their uh, disputes between uh, Yehuda and Israel, when they were both lived by the side by side, and later on when there was only Yehuda, what their um, st- what, how they were. Uh, with regard to the Assyrian Empire and then Assyrian temples and worship. Uh, So the way that the prophetic literature works is that we don't really know a lot about the ideal law in those years and how it was looked at. What we have is the gap between the ideal law, as we see it in the Torah, and then some practical stories that come out throughout Nevi'im, Rishonim, and then Achronim, that from them we can try to understand what the day-to-day life in the temple looked like. We don't have these letters in the first um, temple of priests writing to each other about their load of work or their succeeding in keeping a certain standard of morality or things like that. When we reach the second temple times, at least in the biblical times, I think we do have some of these letters actually incorporated into Ezrav and Nehemiah, and maybe uh, even a mention of them in Sefer Malachi or in, in different ways, we, uh, you know, angles, we might find them also elsewhere. But the li- literature we have of Nevi'im Achonim and Ketuvim is extremely limited. So it's hard to come to big conclusions. I mean, the way I look at it is I'm happy we, we know what we know. 
Wow. So you're, you're essentially saying that Sefer Vayikra lays out a very, very strong ideal. But the fact is, is that for most of the biblical period, and this is a downer, right? But for most of the biblical period, this really wasn't what was fulfilled. And so the the documents that we do have from, you know, ancient Near Eastern annals that we've discovered and are constantly bringing new material from, that those are probably pretty similar to what was actually going on in our Mikdash, if I'm understanding you correctly, because the, the our, our unique way of worship still was being sort of developed and honed in. And the stories we do have in Tanakh about, you know, Chizkiyahu or Yoshiyahu or, 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 you know, some highlight periods here and there, those are really the exception to the rule. Yes, but, <laughs> meaning, I don't want to, I really don't know and I don't want to jump to conclusions about what it doesn't say. Okay. So I don't know to say cross the board what happened and what didn't happen. And if there weren't certain times that things did happen in an ideal way, they might have. I mean, there was no temple in David's days. So even though he worshipped God, uh, we wouldn't have any examples. Then in Shlomo's first days, the most detailed descriptions we have are of the his prayer and the, the inauguration. Yeah. Of the temple, exactly. In the Vrayamim, in Chronicles. By the end of his days, Tanakh tells us he was worshiping, you know, idolatry. So we wouldn't expect anything there. And then mm -hmm. if you move on, king after king, I would say that it's hard to say what happened in good and ideal times. So I just don't know how to say. And for me, reading these uh, text, texts, it, what it helps me do is really visualize a little bit the day-to-day way that part of these ideal laws may have been materialized when they came down to to earth, meaning to people. Um, so I think that in that way, um, seeing these texts just gives at least me another component that I feel is lacking when I read the, the biblical text, but not to say that it didn't exist, just to say that it's not described within these texts. So if I can go back to your original list, so you were speaking about the fact that the difference between the role of the king versus the priest, that in the Torah, it's very clear that they're both uh, subject to the to the rule of God. Was there another somewhat, you know, significant difference or another point that you wanted to uh, make there about the the detail that we have from uh, extra biblical material versus what we have in the Torah? So I've written a lot about uh, the Ethiopian um temple in Ezekiel, the nine last chapters of the book of Yechizkel, which is actually the most detailed temple we have in the biblical narrative, the way we stand. If I would look at the uh, Ezekiel's temple plan, then what I could say is that we also see a difference from the Torah, meaning it's not only a difference between the ideal law and the practical law, and then the way it's materialized in the ancient Near Eastern text. It's also um, maybe something changed even in the way that at least some of our prophets, or at least Yechizkel, see what ideal law will be in the future, meaning that may have also trans been transformed. And there we see some things that are similar, but also something that are very different from the ancient Near Eastern text. If we look at similarities, for instance, between Ezekiel's Ethiopian temple to the ancient Near Eastern text, we can talk about court, large courtyards, square building. It doesn't have two Kodesh and Kodesh Kodeshim, but it has three halls within it, which means that there's um, 
I would say, more progress until you walk into the highest part of the Kedusha. So in that way, I think the, the huge sizes, the huge courtyards, the many, many chambers, the large uh, walls and gates, uh, in that way, Ezekiel's visionary temples is in many ways similar to the ancient Near Eastern texts. But on the other hand, it's interesting because people aren't allowed into that temple. And instead, it has a kind of a stream of water that comes out and connects to the people. There's something pretty similar to Apshu waters in the, some of the Babylonian temples. So I would say that even what is ideal may have changed in biblical texts from the ideal law in the Torah until at least the one temple plan that we have at the end of the book of Yechizkeh. And it also might reflect on some kind of changes that also may have been seen in the world around them. So you're saying that according to that description, the, the Mikdash the Yechizkeh describes is, is a little bit more detached from the people than certainly how it gets described later on, let's say in, in, uh, in the Gemara and other texts. But that, that's sort of a more separatist approach than, than our impression that we get perhaps also from the Torah and definitely from, from later rabbinic texts. Well, I would say that some of the rabbinic texts actually are challenged with what you, the statement you just said, and they kind of and they ask themselves also in also the Rambam, but even before and already in Masechet Midot, what should we make of the future temple? Will it look like the Mishkan? Will it look like what we know from the Solomon's Temple? Will it look like what the Baichani looked at the end of its days under Hordus, or will it look like the Ezekiel's visionary temple? And at least the Rambam says that we don't know, we won't know until it comes which is one option that we just don't know. Rav Herzog, we're talking about contemporary issues, and I'll say that our president's uh, grandfather, Rav Herzog, actually put out a, what he called Chazon Chadash Lichizkel, what he thought then would be the temple plan when Am Yisrael actually uh, wants within this country to put a temple uh, as something practical to do. So, I don't think there's one clear answer that, to that question, but I definitely would say that in my mind, the fact that there's more than one alternative within the Torah is part of the message that the Torah gives us. And we could say it has to do with the fact that we have Pchira Hufshi, that we have, uh, that Am Yisrael till today has a choice. And these might be different ways where our Pchirach of Shit is materialized, and it also may be because there's not only one answer because it depends on the time and the place that these texts are being read or their context. So for all those reasons, I feel that actually trying to come down with one specific answer might actually be missing the point. I think that maybe one of the significant pieces is that it provides multiple options depending on what the people will need or desire at the time that it can be that it could be created. I think that itself, by the way, is a pretty revolutionary piece that a lot of our listeners probably don't think about, that there are actually multiple ways that one can look at the way the Mikdash uh, function throughout biblical times and certainly and certainly after that. Uh, and that that itself is a very uh, significant piece. I'm curious as someone who spends a lot of time sort of thinking about uh, Mikdash of temples and as you said, sort of the different ways that they're presented throughout throughout Tanakh. I guess it's maybe even like a, a personal religious question, but I'm curious how you think about Korbanot in your own religious conception. Is that something that you think, oh, well, that's sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that, or I would, 
I would love if like I went to the, you know, hotel and that was, there was something that was behind that, that was much greater. I'm, I'm curious if I, it's sort of a personal question I did not prepare before that I was going to ask you, but I'm curious as certainly also someone who lives in Yerushalayim, how you think about that just as a, as a religious person uh, living in that milieu and, and also studying these texts so deeply. So uh, honestly, Koba, not to something very far from me. I'm uh, not a vegetarian, but I'm I, closer to the stream of thought of an of, of Cook's Ethiopian vegetarian world. But on the other hand, I do understand that many things in the Torah may have been relevant and may be relevant, even though they're not relevant to the way I look at things today. So my whole perspective is, this is what I see today, but understanding that we really don't know where the world will be in 50 years from now. I mean, you never know. Maybe we'll be preparing animals in the nanotechnologia building from some kind of par of meat, and then kolbanos will be a much easier concept because we won't feel like we're slaughtering animals in order to sacrifice them. I mean, you never know. So I just would say for that from my perspective, where I stand today, I can't say that I'm praying for a korbanot to be sacrificed again, but we have so much way to go beforehand that I'm not even worried. Even if you look at the prophetic literature, there are many stages that come before sacrificing sacrifices. But I'm also humble enough to say, never say never. Okay, I appreciate the honesty. I appreciate your approach. And I appreciate your time chatting with us today as we open the book of Aikra. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.